Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and in Intellectual History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Carl Nellis, a host of the channel, and today I'm talking with Irina Dumitrescu, professor of English Medieval Studies at the University of Bonn. We're talking about her new book, The Experience of Education in Anglo-Saxon Literature, just out from Cambridge University Press. Irina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you, Carl. Well, you've written such an interesting book that pulls together so many fields, so many different interests of, of mine, and so many aspects of intellectual history. You, you walk us through, for instance, uh, your touch on affect theory and pedagogy, and there, there are even questions of uh, literary interpretation kind of in the, <laughs> in the ways that it's changed since the Middle Ages to today. Uh, I'm really excited to talk with you about this book. If you would... Tell us what brought you to a project like this uh, in the course of your career. What got you to the experience of education in Anglo-Saxon literature? Well, I think there's sort of um, there are short term causes and long term causes, um, right. <laughs> as there always are with large projects like this. So I, I thought for a long time that it started um, in my encounter with a very strange and enigmatic old English poem called that we call Solomon and Saturn, uh, mm. which is this weird um, dialogue between two mysterious figures in which one of them wants to learn about the Lord's Prayer or the Paternoster, and the other one says strange things about its magical powers. <laughs> and, and, you know, people always uh, try to find the sources of, of its um, odd little lines, uh, but I realized that it was actually a teacher-student encounter, and it was a very dark one, a um, mm. slightly scary yeah. one. And so I became interested in reading it as a scene of instruction, as a scene of teaching, and what that might tell us about about the Anglo-Saxon imagination of teaching. Mm. Once I was well into the project, I realized that I had more personal read it, reasons for it too. Um, I had actually long been interested in reading campus novels. They were, sort of, they were my fun reading um, mm. during high school. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was sure I would never study English because English departments always seemed like places where people were constantly, you know, having affairs with each other and getting into all sorts of troubles uh, from my campus novel reading. Um, and and also my father was my mother's professor. So mm. I had grown up in um, the family context that was shaped by the teacher-student relationship and really yeah. continued to be shaped for the duration of their marriage. And so I realized that it was a very personal topic, um, even as I was trying to engage with the Anglo-Saxon materials in a responsible and scholarly way. Um, that's really where I think where my interest in the emotions and the things that are unsaid or happened between the lines um, or I only hinted at came, came in. It starts with Solomon and Saturn. How does it grow from there into a full book project? Well, what started happening was that I saw 
these instructional moments everywhere, all over Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. literature. And in fact, my book is uh, is really just a tiny slice of, of what there is. Um, I started seeing that sometimes in the course of a longer text, two characters will just for a little while take on an instructional relationship to each other, and they'll have um, a teacher-student moment. They might be two adult figures. Um, they might right. be Christ and a saint or a saint and a hermit, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, right? But they might, for a moment, have a kind of classroom moment with each other. Mm. Um, and so I started seeing them everywhere. And I also began to look at um, what I could find about how Anglo-Saxon education actually took place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that rendered some very interesting materials. Um, so one of my chapters is on a text that's become an obsession of mine. I actually taught it this morning. Um, Elfrich Bada's Colloquies, which mm-hmm. are a, um, a set of dialogues that we think were composed for the teaching of oral Latin. Mm-hmm. And they are um, absolutely wild and difficult and um, full of raucous swear words and fighting and violence and uh, hints of sexual abuse and mm-hmm. um, arguments. And so I became really interested in how um, what was going on in classrooms as well and how what some of it, their texts can tell us about that. Mm-hmm. So I really looked at both. I'm really I'm interested in representations of education in this book, but I was also very much interested in how teaching, especially teaching literacy, took place. There's a small note in your introduction as you're describing the book and kind of setting out that describes why you focus on literature and not on material sources for understanding Anglo-Saxon education. Can you talk about that a little bit? It's really hard to draw the line between uh, literature and other sources. We don't have an enormous amount for very elementary education, which is what I'm Mm -hmm. the most interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, We certainly have um, grammars of Latin early in Anglo-Saxon England. We have collections of riddles, which I think are very closely connected to the kinds of mental training they wanted, um, especially monastic environments, teachers wanted to imbue um, their students with. Mm-hmm. Um, we have quite a few texts um, that reflect perhaps more theoretically on education, the translations of Latin often. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually the topic is just so immensely broad. Um, <laughs> and and I would, I would hesitate to say this is literary and this is not. I have um, a chapter on Bede's ecclesiastical history mm-hmm. um, of the English people. And of course it's a book that's considered a history, yes. but you can also close read it as a literary text. And I think Bede composes it very deliberately to be close read in certain moments. And and so I, I actually wouldn't say that line really makes a lot of sense. Um, but I am interested in the literary qualities of all kinds of texts, whether we would, you know, see them as a biography or a history or an imaginative poem at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're Anglo-Sa- literate Anglo-Saxons and probably illiterate ones, too. We're simply very, very skilled at communicating several things at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they give little clues um, to how one might read different levels of the same text. You introduced the idea of uh, grammatica at the beginning of the book. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Well, this is Martin Irvine. Um, Martin Irvine, uh, who used to be a scholar of Anglo-Saxon and medieval literature, um, wrote a really important uh, book, I want to say, about uh, now 30 years ago on grammar teaching in the Middle Ages um, as being not just about teaching how to write, read and write Latin and how the grammar works, um, as we might understand it, um, but having but really teaching a certain structure of thought. Right. Mm-hmm. And a way of approaching texts and taking them apart. This is a very simplified version of what's a very long and complex <laughs> book. Yes, yeah. um, but I think this is I think we see this, especially in the early Anglo-Saxon period, when there's a kind of fashion for composing collections of um, riddles in Latin mm-hmm. uh, among Anglo-Saxons. They get this uh, collection um, of 100 riddles by a sort of mysterious possibly North African figure called Symphosius. And we don't know if that's his real name or if he's just dinner party boy. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, there are sort of riddles on various objects. um, And the Anglo-Saxons love this. And you have people who might, who are otherwise quite serious churchmen also writing collections of riddles on this model. And I think this is a theory I don't really describe in the book, but Um, I think this is because they're really interested not just in teaching their pupils how to read Latin, Mm. but also how to read texts in an imaginative, open-ended way that's attuned to uh, paradox and strange relationships between things and complexity. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason they do this is because they have to deal with the Bible. If you believe that that it is scripture, that it is sacred scripture— you cannot read it literally, right? Mm-hmm. It, it absolutely right. doesn't right. make sense. So you have to cultivate a kind of um, uh, an interpretive state of mind or interpretive uh, cognitive ability to be able to think in the right kind of metaphorical and imaginative way that you need mm-hmm. in order to make sense of the Bible mm-hmm. and still believe in it as the revealed word of God. Right? Yeah. So I think they're using this very playful little form of the riddle to train high, very high level imaginative thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's going hand in hand with Latin education, right? With learning the Latin language and with learning meter of Latin poetry and so on. Mm-hmm. One of the other aspects of the introduction that helps to set out the rest of the book is your emphasis on some, something you've already touched on, the, the way that you're going to discuss uh, encounters between pupil and teacher uh, and really focus on those kind of relationships uh, and you especially talk about the the form of the dialogue. You spend some time talking about ambivalence toward authority, uh, navigating or inspiring or working with pedagogically useful emotions. I thought that was a great phrase. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about um, maybe triangulate between encounters between people and teacher and the dialogue and how your book engages the idea of pedagogically useful emotions? Well, I think um, one of the really so, as I say in my book, uh, dialogues are just a a, a standard mode of pedagogy mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in um, in late antiquity. Um, obviously, in the ancient period, in late antiquity, yes. in the yeah. early Middle Ages, right? They don't really go out of fashion, um, and they're incredibly useful for for everything from uh, conveying basic trivia. Um, or you know, doing a catechism, covering basic knowledge, um, uh, grammatical uh, information, to exploring higher level philosophical ideas. Mm-hmm. So you have the dialogues of Augustine and Boethius and so on. Um, 
one of the things that's quite interesting when you start to look at these dialogues more closely is that what we might expect would be a medieval way of thinking about teacherly authority or pedagogic authority falls apart very quickly. Mm. The teachers aren't always authoritative or to put it a different way, they might have some special knowledge, but the relationship to, between the pupil and the teacher might be a fraught one. Mm. Uh, so you have, um, I'll think of an example from uh, from my texts in Solomon and Saturn. Solomon, I argue, he seems to be the teacher, right? But he never really teaches Saturn what the Paternoster is. He just talks about it <laughs> and how great it is. And then he basically insults Saturn by saying yeah. that, the, you know, the, he who does not know the Paternoster is like wandering cattle, you know, he, he's like <laughs> this exile demonic figure, but he doesn't really teach him. And then, and then fundamentally, I think he, he actually threatens him. He sort of reads Saturn as this kind of demonic wandering figure and, uh, and suggests that, you know, if you knew the Paternoster, it would kill you. In another one of my texts, uh, the Old English Andreas, which is just a wonderful, wonderful um, and wacky epic epic poem. <laughs> uh, there's a, a teaching encounter on a boat, and Andrew is just kind of a terrible saint. Uh, he's a really real disappointment of a saint and apostle. Mm-hmm. And he's having this conversation with the captain of the ship, um, who he thinks is a nice-looking and intelligent young man. He doesn't realize that the captain is actually Christ, who's disguised himself and is kind of asking him all sorts of leading questions about Jesus, right, about Christ on earth. And at one point, Andrew starts to realize that he's kind he's being tested in some way or he's being asked trick questions. And only later, um, once he's brought to his destination and he wakes up, does he realize who he had been talking to. So you get these moments of disguise or mistrust um, or even uh, potentially sexual uh, temptation between teacher and student. Mm -hmm. And I think Anglo-Saxons writing about this material are very much interested in the tension between teacher and student. And I think part of the the lesson for the the reader of of the text or the listener, the hearer of the text, lies in that conflict between teacher and student, rather than in adopting the student position and just accepting or learning what the teacher figure has to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're getting this out of late antiquity too. They're getting an approach to dialogue, um, which uh, isn't as uh, as straightforward in terms of teachers being good <laughs> as we might mm-hmm. think. And I yeah. think we now te- we know we read Plato critically an hour. Some of us some of us read Plato critically and we don't assume that Socrates is necessarily always giving straight lessons as it were. Um, right. There are people who read Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy um, uh, really is potentially also being um, more critical of the of the teacher figure um so there's a rich tradition in late antiquity and antiquity of uh, of encounters between teachers and students in which the teachers are a little bit sketchy and they're interested in these negative emotions like fear like curiosity like desire um uh like mistrust um and what kind of potential cognitive uses those emotions might might have yeah. 
One final note that I really appreciated from the introduction is when you set out that, of course, there's not just one theory of teaching in Anglo-Saxon literature, but that there are multiple theories of teaching and of learning. Uh, And so it's not like we're saying that all of these texts hold the same view, um, but that part of what we're seeing across the course of your argument, across the course of the various texts over the arc of your book, is uh, many views, sometimes in agreement, sometimes conflicting, um, that there is an array of approaches to teaching and learning in Anglo-Saxon literature. Absolutely. And I think um, I could go further and say teaching Mm. is much more than what I described it in this book as well. I basically narrowed in, you could say, on two kinds of education, uh, spiritual education and education in literacy. Mm -hmm. And I think they make sense because they often are very closely linked up. Um, Yeah. Sometimes learning to read and learning to read Latin is part of um, entering a, a spiritual life. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes spiritual things are described in the language of very basic classroom education, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think those make sense together. But of course, it's just a tiny, um, a tiny slice. Um, I'm not talking about teaching in medicine or in law mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or in a warfare, the war or in craftsmanship, or in manners, right? Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or Certainly how not. to be a good person. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and we do have, uh, there's actually scholars are doing quite interesting works on, on learning in these various areas and, and how mm. it seems to have been passed on. And so I really took a, even quite a thin little slice of um, mm-hmm. of the teaching continuum. But even within that, there are a lot of different ideas the issue of curiosity, to what extent curiosity is a useful um, urge mm-hmm. in in the teaching relationship. Um, texts tend to present that in quite conflicted ways. Um, the issue of uh, how violence, suffering, and pain uh, mm-hmm. can uh, can play a role in the process of learning. Uh, texts again show quite a quite different approaches to that question. Um, throughout the Middle Ages, but also uh, in the Anglo-Saxon period. So you and and the issue of forgetting, right? To what extent is forgetting um, a useful thing or a um, right. a negative part of the of the teaching process? Mm-hmm. You do some really interesting things in the introduction with Alfred and suffering, but let's jump past those. In chapter one, you really dive into that connection between literacy and spiritual learning with Bede, and especially the John of Beverly miracle. Tell us what you do with Bede on language through looking at the John of Beverly miracle. Well, this is a wonderful, uh, wonderful little miracle, which not that many people have looked at. People tend to think about uh, Cadman as the big story for for English literature uh, when it comes to Bede's ecclesiastical history. Cadman, of course, is, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, is the is the cowherd who who's caught at a party, unable to compose songs on uh, on the fly, um, and then has an angelic vision and is uh, basically commanded to sing um, sing about creation and miraculously composes um, vernacular English verse on the creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it then becomes a monk and is taken into the monastery at Whitby and, and there composes more verse on, on biblical themes. So that's often, that's sort of Bede's telling of the beginning of English um, religious poetry. 
Um, and, and that's, it's a wonderful story and that's the one everybody goes to, but actually, you know, the funny thing about that story is it has no actual English in it. Um, Bede gives us the whole story in Latin and he translates, yeah. And he translates Cadman's hymn into Latin and says, well, you know, it's not quite the same as it is in the original, but here it is in Latin. Um, (laughs) Well, a few chapters later in, in book five of the history, he has a scene which is patterned along similar lines, I think. And in it, a mute youth with scrofulous hair is brought to um, St. John of Beverly, now St. John, Bishop John at that point, who seems to have a kind of um, habit of healing people at a particular time of year. And this man, what I find so fascinating about it is he's, he's never spoken in his entire life. And it's clear from the context that he's it's not just that he hasn't spoken, he hasn't communicated in signs, he hasn't written. There are all kinds of language miracles throughout the Middle Ages where people can communicate in other ways, even if they can't speak. But this youth has been stuck in his own head for his entire life. He's he's like a Kaspar Hauser figure. Um, and John makes him stick his tongue out and says, he makes a sign of the crossover and says, say, say, ah, say, be, say, tse, you know, or, See, however, ABC and the boy says them and then John teaches him words and then John teaches him sentences. And the youth is so ecstatic at being able to finally escape this entrapment of his own mind that he stays up all night <laughs> talking to people. Mm. And what I find so fascinating is this is an English youth, right? This is clearly not a literate person. It's not someone who knows Latin. But John is teaching him to speak English the way you would teach someone to read and write Latin. So he's really thinking about the English language as something that can have a, a process of learning and I think also a grammar like Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful moment of, of the ABCs also being a kind of um, charm, right? In other parts of the, of the history, uh, you have um, letters that unbind prisoners. Um, in this case, it's the alphabet. The alphabet has this charm-like quality um, to unbind the mute boy's tongue. Uh, so I think he's really kind of, and he makes him say yes, actually. He makes him say yes first. Really, the boy has to say yes in his own language. And that be gives in English um, and translates it uh, into Latin. So there's a, there's a sort of sense that I think that this is the speaker of English, right? But English comes through Christian miracle, and it comes through Latin learning. So you, you remark toward the end of the chapter that this is a fresh model for English participation in the Roman church, but you also spend some time in the chapter talking about this as uh, vernacular liberation. Mm-hmm. But then you go on to talk about how the youth goes out into the secular world. Can you bring us to that point in your argument? Well, I think what's interesting, if, especially if you read, um, if you think about this scene together with the Cadman scene, which which are really uh, parallel, Cadman's this simple man who is then brought into the monastery. You know, they have him um, perform his trick. Everyone's convinced by it. Uh, and they bring him into the monastery. And maybe right. he also re- learns to read and write. But in any case, he's he's folded in more closely um, into the monastic community. Uh, he probably worked on monastic lands before, but now he becomes a monk. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense with uh, Cadman's story, okay, this is 
England and English poetry being brought into an institution, right? Mm -hmm. An international Christian Latinate institution. Well, the mute youth um, has a slightly different story, and I find that interesting that he comes afterwards. Uh, John uh, seems to have had a familia of um, people who probably traveled with him and whom he taught. And he offers the youth, uh, this is, I mean, the real John, not just <laughs> this particular representation. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he offers this youth, um, as B tells it, a, a, the opportunity to join him in this group or entourage. Uh, and the boy says no. And he just goes mm-hmm. back. He just goes back. Yeah, and yeah. I think this is so wonderful. Okay, you know, he learns English the way you might learn to read and write Latin. Um, figuratively, he's part of this Latin world, right? He's This is another scene of England being brought into this uh, cosmopolitan Latin literate culture. But then he just says, he just turns his back on it. He takes his language and goes home. And I think that's a really beautiful, (laughs) (laughs) beautiful moment of um, of creating a space outside the church. And I don't I it may have been that Bede heard the story that way and he just had to be true to his material. That's also possible. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But he includes the story. Yeah. I thought you put it so beautifully at the end of the chapter where you you talk about how in the course of his teaching, John made the boy say yes. um, But that the story concludes when the boy learns to say no. Yeah. The next chapter Solomon and Saturn, uh, where you really dive into prayer. So we kind of go from learning uh, the way you structure the book from letters to prayer. We also You also introduce what you mentioned earlier, the fact that in most of these teacher-student encounters, it's not usually uh, education in, in the way that we think of it today, adhering to childhood, but that it's usually an adult student as well as an adult mm-hmm. teacher. Can you talk about what role that plays in Solomon and Saturn in particular? In Solomon and Saturn, the student is a prince who's traveled the world in search of wisdom and so on. So he's clearly, he's at least a graduate student, let's say. Um, and and he's, now, he's now sought himself a kind of dangerous supervisor. But I think um, what... Uh, a lot of medieval texts do, uh, and this is this is as true for Solomon and Saturn as it is for Chaucer, is they like to use the image of elementary education in order to work through ideas of higher level learning, as it were. And Solomon and Saturn plays on the curious qualities of uh, the Lord's Prayer, which is, as far as we can tell, over a very, very long period of time, one of the very first texts to be to be learned or practiced when when a child learns to read and write, along with the Psalms in certain cases um, and the Credo, or the Creed, uh, the the Our Father is up there, right? Uh, and a number of Anglo-Saxon writers basically say, you know, if um, if lay people are going to know one thing, it should be the the Lord's Prayer and the Creed, right? These are the basics. These are the things that every Christian should know. Um, and it's a great idea to translate them because people need to know these essential um, texts of the faith. Uh, so it's, you know, you even see this, you see this in early modern primers too, right? The alphabet mm-hmm. and maybe some yeah. syllables um, and then the Paternoster and the Creed, right? These are very um, typical. Um, so on the one hand, it's the basics, right? It's the earliest thing you do. It's kindergarten, right? Or at least grade one. <laughs> yeah. 
On the other hand, it's also a prayer that has a, um, a tradition of commentary, of translation, uh, has difficult passages, you know, deliver us from evil or from the evil one. What is it? Um, so it's also a very high level text, right? Mm -hmm. um, which in which the simple language can be taken apart and commented on and, um, in, in complex ways. Uh, so this poem is really about exploring how you can know this prayer in different ways and also how you can be ignorant in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that it's the Salman and Saturn is so interested in is how you might know a prayer, but not really pay attention to it anymore. Mm -hmm. And as I worked on this um, text, I fa started finding mentions in all kinds of places about about the problem of distraction, right? Mm -hmm. Or of how important it is to pray with attention, right? With lively or careful attention. Uh, I think this was, especially in a monastic context, very much a concern. Um, mm -hmm. How do you memorize a text, sing it or speak it over and over and over again, and still actually pray with it, really feel the words, mm -hmm. right? Especially if it's part of the monastic routine, um, if it's not you doing it spontaneously. And I think they were very good at working out mental tricks to try and connect to the language, connect to language which was very well known and wrote. So it's also about that kind of higher level ignorance when you really, you maybe know a text and you may know the importance of the text and you may know, you may be a good Christian monk and have been praying it for years and, and know what it's supposed to mean, but can you still really pray it mm -hmm. rather than going through the motions or letting your mind wander? And that's where you bring in the idea of mimetic desire in the character of Saturn. Yeah, I think basically um, this is Solomon Saturn is a great uh, story of a failed teaching encounter, mm -hmm. and um, it has a very interesting scene near the end, which is which is key to this in in one of the versions. Basically, Solomon says, you know, this is what happens when someone sings the, the prayer, the the Paternoster, and the individual letters of the Lord's Prayer in Latin. Um, become warriors and attack the devil or devils in brutal, gruesome ways. Yeah. And in one of the versions of, of the poem breaks off right near the beginning of that. And the other one, we have this whole letter battle. Um, and in that, the version that we have the whole thing, there are uh, runes, the runic equivalents mm -hmm. to those Latin letters, uh, Roman letters in the manuscript. And they're not read out loud. There are old English poems where you would read the runes out loud as part of the poem. But in this, in Solomon Saturn, they're silent. So I think what was happening was that the person, if someone were, was actually reading this poem aloud, they would have had to skip the runes. They would have seen the runes and had to skip them in order for the poem to work. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, at some subtle level, they're being reminded that they're reading, right? They're not listening because yeah. yeah. they would be missing something if they were only listening. And they're being reminded of their own process of education and their own learning of literacy, probably involving the Paternoster at some point very early on. I think what the poem does is stage the scene of failed teaching where Saturn never really learns it in order mm. to encourage the reader to reconnect or to desire this, this prayer, which he already knows. Mm -hmm. But he has to feel what Saturn feels, which is this incredible burning longing for this quotidian prayer. In the next chapter, where you really get into Bada's colloquies, violence 
takes center stage. And you, you talked about that a couple of times already. But one of the things you do in beginning this chapter and in positioning the way you're going to talk about the violence in the colloquies is you make a careful distinction between uh, descriptions of violence in the literature and what we might think of as the way we stereotypically imagine the Middle Ages as a time of violence. And you mm -hmm. say what we're addressing here in some ways is violence as a motif in the literature and the way that does or does not connect with or does or does not represent the way that life necessarily was lived. Can you talk about that a little bit and address maybe that stereotype? Sure. I think uh, there's a very powerful idea that um, medieval people were, well, I could say it's the, it's a little bit the Game of Thrones idea, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are yeah. these kind of burly people in in furry coats with, with skull jewelry, um, walking around bashing each other's heads in. Um, and so if in the classroom you, you beat a little boy mercilessly, well, nobody thinks too much of that, right? And there's certainly, I think it's still fair to say that they had different attitudes towards pedagogical violence or correction <laughs> um, than some people today, than some people today. Right. Right? Um, right. I've had students in their 40s uh, who had gone to school in Texas and in California who were disciplined, physically disciplined by their mm -hmm. teachers. Right. So it's not really... It's not that everyone today has decided not to be pupils anymore. Um, right. uh, but but certainly, um, certainly was a more common idea and per perhaps just the standard. I think that you have a number of voices. If you if you read up on this, you realize, one, it's not that it's not that it was unquestioned. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it was normal and uh, nobody would have been put in jail for uh, for uh, whipping the little boy who hadn't learned this paradigm. Um, but there is a sense that that there are problems with violence. Um, so one of the problems with violence or with punishment more broadly is that in an early monastic context, the teacher should have been supervising pupils um, so carefully that they didn't have a chance to do bad things and be punished right. by them. Um, yeah. So there's a Carolingian um, educator who basically writes uh, that, um, that pupils should just be observed so carefully and so closely that they are never have to be uh, punished in any way, not not just hit. Um, and it's a failure on the part of the teacher if if the if the little boy misbehaves, right, or has the opportunity to misbehave. That's a little panopticon almost. It's very panopticon, and there's yeah, a, yeah. there's an enormous amount of uh, of wonderfully Foucauldian aspects yeah, to early yeah, monastic yeah. education, like uh, sleeping um, sleeping chambers where the light is kept on all night, uh, yeah. lest lest the boys or the monks do anything untoward in their beds, right? So yeah. there's quite a lot of that. Um, a nicer version is attached to St. Anselm, uh, where a, um, a teacher comes to him and says, you know, I, um, I beat my pupils all the time and they still act like beasts. And Anselm <laughs> says, well, if you treat them like animals, why would you expect them to be? behave like anything yes. animals um and you have stories of monastic pupils upset at their teacher's cruelty and turning on him and so on so there's definitely i think i think there's an awareness that um excessive unreasonable violence can have negative effects right negative behavioral effects mm -hmm. um and so it's not a free-for-all 
uh, right, even though you do also have people saying versions of spare the rod, spoil the child, or mm-hmm. or that corporal punishment is is really a sign of a father's love for his son and so on, right? This is how you how you raise your child well. So I don't want to say those don't exist, but I think it's more complicated. And I think a lot of people do notice, probably who worked with children, did notice that it actually sometimes didn't help very much if they just beat the kids a lot. So I think a lot of the times when we are reading about schoolroom violence in medieval texts, uh, the purpose of that is imaginative. Mm -hmm. I think they know that, in fact, I know that they know that violent images are incredibly powerful for um, mnemonically, right? So if you want to memorize things, and Mary Carruthers has done an enormous amount of uh, really important work on this, on medieval, ancient and medieval mnemonic practices, if you want to memorize a set of things, you think up really outrageous, grotesque, and potentially violent images, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they know that this is this is something that works as a mental trick, Um And there are ways that you can use violence or violent imagery to uh, clarify the differences between things, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Alfrich in his grammar talks about the passive conjugation of the verb, right? Um, And he he draws a, you know, he makes a, draws the contrast between I whip and I am whipped. Mm -hmm. If you don't have any sense of what a passive voice might be, Yeah. That's, that's a very good way to get that across. <laughs> Whereas if you say I love versus I am loved or I see versus I am seen, seen right, that's that that's a little more vague. That's a little more abstract. Uh, you know, why can't we both love each other and so on? Why can't we both see each other at the same time? Uh, the difference between I whip and I am whipped is a big one. And mm-hmm. you can imagine that on your own body to figure out what the grammatical form is. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I think in those moments, it's not, we shouldn't read Alfred and think, okay, that means every, he was whipping his students constantly. It's, it's that he knew that that's a very powerful image to draw a distinction mm. with. Um, so I think we just have to be very, very skeptical every time we read one of these representations or mentions of violence. Um, sometimes the important thing is, is what kind of mental, what the mental image is doing, not that it's telling us something about a real life classroom or situation. Mm-hmm. Can you also talk a little bit about what Bada says within the colloquies themselves about his joking words <laughs> and, and how he challenges uh, readers to, to be critical readers almost, or to think carefully about how they're interpreting the colloquies themselves? Well, Alfred Bada is such a funny figure. Uh, he's, we don't know anything about him really, except that he was interested in um, Alfred of Ancient's work, uh, and that he seems to have composed these these the school textbook. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we we don't know much more than that. Uh, and he's sometimes thought of as a rogue figure, you know, because people <laughs> think like, what kind of a man would compose such a terrible set of um, such a terrible set of dialogues for his students uh, yeah. to to learn from. Um, but he is, as you pointed out, he's actually doing something quite subtle and very, very difficult to pin down. He, he has the, a kind of master figure at the end, uh, say, um, I've mixed, uh, I've mis- mixed joking with wise words in these dialogues because little boys like to joke and they like to be silly. <laughs> um, and they like that more than serious things. Right. So there's a sense in there that, 
uh, he's telling us not to take really not to take these too seriously, but they also do have serious themes. And, um, and, and he's often, um, he often adapts passages from, um, from older Latin learning dialogues, uh, but makes whatever was naughty in them much naughtier. (laughs) Whatever was a little bit troubling, much more troubling. Um, so instead of a young man asking a young woman for a kiss before he goes on a trip, it's an older monk asking a younger monk for a kiss. Mm-hmm. And the younger monk saying, no, I don't dare to kiss you. Um, they're not supposed to do this. Um, so he very deliberately crafts these troublesome situations. Uh, a couple of scenes where older monks, sometimes drunk, ask uh, younger monks to accompany them to the bathroom and to assist them in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, If reformed monasteries in the late 10th century in England uh, were not supposed to have this kind of behavior going on, right? Mm -hmm. You don't send a little boy alone with an older monk to the, to the bathroom. But in Bada's colloquies, the boys say, no, I don't think I should do that. And, uh, and the teacher says, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. Ask the, you know, help that old man in the bathroom. It's fine. Um, so it's very difficult to, to try to scoop what the moral lesson is out of these dialogues. He's, He's definitely exploring difficult situations sometimes. He's exploring fights between the boys. Uh, he's exploring um, how difficult it is to be punished and how humiliating it is to be punished um, and how the sort of um, tricky situation of being in a monastic context where you have to be obedient, but the older monks may be trying to get you drunk or trying to be too close to you. Yeah. But he doesn't give us a really clear moral where the boys say, no, thank you. And then they go away pure and unsullied. In fact, uh, in the end, even though the boys try to preserve some distance, they say no. He te- Bada teaches his pupils to say no. Mm-hmm. But then they say yes afterwards. Um, so I'm still not quite sure what to do with that that right. aspect of things. Yeah. Can you can you talk a little more about the challenge of interpreting suffering or translating suffering? I'm trying to get a real sense of what's going on with the Anglo-Saxon when it's ad- addressing suffering directly. Yeah, and the, and the word, word is throwing or throwing, and it's used uh, primarily for for pain, right? For suffering, pain, um, but sometimes it Anglo-Saxons stretch it for other purposes. Um, so it, um, Alfrich, when he writes his grammar of Latin, but he writes it in English, has to figure out um, English terms or English equivalents for the Latin grammatical terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the passive, he uses throwing, which I think is really kind of an innovation, or he's um, he's he's uh, copying the work that the Latin passio can do, uh, and that it can be can refer to grammar or to or to you know, suffering in action or suffering pain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he sort of stretches that word um, really wonderfully um, to serve as a grammatical term, but then it also makes you think, I think it would have made them think of actual suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That you might think of, pa- of the passive um, voice in terms of suffering. Um, so, th- yeah, it's an interesting little slippage. Um, but I think more broadly what I would say is that there are, Alfred Bada especially is very, very aware of how language of suffering can be very useful for learning grammar. 
Yeah, so I wanted you to talk about throwing in chapter three because it comes back in a different usage or in maybe a slightly shifted usage. Mm -hmm. You know, the slippage is continuing in the life of St. Mary of Egypt where you really dig into and pull a lot of the pieces of the book together in this final chapter. It's not the conclusion, but uh, in this final chapter, in the life of St. Mary of Egypt, where there's a really interesting relationship between student and teacher with Zosimus and Mary, emotions are at the fore, questions of morality are at the fore. <laughs> so talk to us about the life of St. Mary of Egypt and how it engages all the threads of your argument that have built up to that point in the book. Well, the life of uh, St. Mary of Egypt is an extremely outrageous um, late antique text, um, which is in Greek, and then it's translated into Latin and then into Old English, always in pretty close translations. Uh, and what's so outrageous about it is that uh, in many saints' lives, you have a very pure, holy, extraordinary person, especially if they're, if they're saints' lives centered on women, who is perhaps tempted with sex or, or threatened with rape, um, but manages to preserve their virginity and their purity, is dramatically and ostentatiously tortured. Um, and that torture is the pasio, right? Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, or the passion, um, it's also a word that throwing is used for, saints passions, right? In just general Old English. Well, with Mary, she sleeps with everyone starting around the age of 12. <laughs> right. She doesn't even charge. She's not doing it for the money. It's not out of necessity. She just finds every man she can and um, has sex with him. Uh, and I think, in fact, we're even meant to read her as potentially a rapist because at one point she follows these men onto a boat and forces them to do perverted things with her. Um, and they can't really escape this, um, this nymphomaniac. At one point, she describes her sexual passion, right, mm -hmm. as throwing. But Old English throwing doesn't have the sense of passion as, a, as that kind of, uh, like a sexual emotion or longing. That's, or that's mm -hmm. the only place I could find it. So she actually, um, she really has her dramatic torture in the midst of her sexual desires. And it's a very, very different um, kind of saints' lives. It was ex also extremely popular in the Middle Ages. Uh, <laughs> yeah. everyone, I wonder why. Uh, uh, so it's translated into all, all sorts of vernacular versions. There are operas mm -hmm. about Mary of Egypt uh, in the early modern, uh, actually the modern period. Uh, so she's kind of a diva, I think. But um, I think what that story really crystallizes is a broader medieval, not just Anglo-Saxon interest in learning from imperfection, mm -hmm. um, in figures who are sinful and what it might mean for a sinful or an outrageously sinful person to be shown the grace of God. Mm -hmm. um, and so in order to show how great God's grace is, the the imperfection has to be played up, the sinfulness, the mm -hmm. desire, the mm -hmm. erotic longing, the, the singing and dancing and drinking of wine and so on. But I think they're also aware, and part of that is in the text already, that when you use ideas like that to teach, there's always the danger that you might be tempted. And Mary and Zosimus are out there in the desert having this teaching encounter, and he's asking her, you know, tell me about your youth, tell me more, tell me more about all of this, um, to an extent which is a little creepy. And yep. she says, <laughs> and she says, you know, please don't force me to tell 
um, to narrate my life because I fear that my words will pollute both you and this air. Yeah, and the air, yeah. So she knows to some extent she might tempt him. And yet she goes ahead with it because she has to tell him how bad she was in order to show him um, how magnificent God is. So I think what that really shows, the thread that that pulls out of the whole book and all of the, um, or at least most of the instructional moments that I look at, is that there's a sense that dangerous emotions can be very useful pedagogically, but they have to be constantly kept in check, right? It's not necessarily that a certain urge or emotion or passion is good or bad, um, whether that's curiosity or suffering or fear or, or erotic longing um, or some other kind of desire. Um, they're not easily categorized in these texts as good or bad, but they're, they're a kind of um, fire-like, right, a kind of spark introduced mm-hmm. into the learning that could warm it up or could set it all on fire. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I think that's, that's what so many of these texts are exploring, this really tricky balance um, between creating a space for, for dangerous emotions and having um, absolute failure of teaching and, and of spiritual development mm-hmm. um, if those emotions get out of hand. Mm. I think that's a great place to wrap up we we skipped over chapter four, uh, recollection, uh, where you really get into Andreas and you're talking about memory and riddles and you even get into cannibalism and revenants and uh, <laughs> uh, remixing and use of sources and all that. We'll have to leave that for readers of the book because we've taken up so much of your time already. Before we go, could you tell us maybe what you're working on now or what we might look for uh, next from you? I'm working on three things, and I'll describe them very fast. Mm. Um, one comes out of my obsession with Mary of Egypt, uh, and it's a study of women's charismatic performances in medieval literature and other medieval texts. Uh, so I'm interested in medieval divas, as it were, and and how they fascinate um, and occasionally repulse. Um, so that's, that's going to be my next monograph. Um, I'm also still very interested in Latin pedagogy over a longer period of time, um, at least until the Renaissance, and the use of strong emotions emotions and language teaching, but that's a project I'm doing very slowly. Mm. And I'm also working on uh, the proposal for a nonfiction book for the general public on the uses of imperfection, uh, which very much comes out of this material, but also out of um, a wide range of interests that I have. Well, we will keep an eye out for all three of those. Again, today we've been discussing the experience of education in Anglo-Saxon literature just out from Cambridge University Press. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the New Books and Intellectual History channel of the New Books Network. Arena, thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much, Carl.